If you will take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Join me in standing, if you would, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning again at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being first translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day. We pray, God, that you would give us understanding as we approach difficult passages, and we pray, God, that you would help us see with clarity the message of truth that changes us. God, help us understand that you have been preparing a way for us to come into your presence for much longer than anything has ever been created. That from the very beginning, before you ever said, let there be, the plan was Christ coming among us, dying for our sins, and redeeming a fallen people. God, help us trust that you have loved us with an everlasting love and to lean in instead of running away. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. The story of Melchizedek and his encounter with Abram is not a fluke. It's not one of those tiny little incidental things that gets plugged into the Bible that people look at and go, huh, that's weird. I wonder why it's there. But often that's exactly how we treat with it. We look at it and go, huh, that's weird. I wonder why it's there. Well, it's not a coincidence because serving a sovereign God, we recognize there are no coincidences. All things are in the hand of God and God governs and ordains and prepares and fulfills his own purposes for his creation. He guides his creation so that what we do is what he has planned and prepared. Every single thing which comes to us is by his hand. And every single thing that comes to us by scripture is created and curated for our understanding and preserved for our growth in Christ. Every command, every account, every promise is always designed to show us Christ. He is always the point of the story. And the story of Melchizedek is no different. And turn again, we're going to look once more at the passage in Genesis that this is referencing. So Genesis chapter 14. And I want to think about this exchange between Melchizedek and Abram revolving around Abram's tithe and Melchizedek's blessing. So Genesis chapter 14, starting at verse 18, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God, or God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, God of, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave to him a tithe of all. So, What we see is that something happened that Abram didn't really expect. 
Abram had gone after his, son, his uh, nephew Lot. He had gone to rescue him from being captured by the kings that had carried him away. And Abram and his personal army of 300 servants went and slaughtered the kings and destroyed their armies and rescued Lot and were returning with all of the plunder and all of the goods. And out of nowhere, this king of Salem came out to meet him. Now, I've told you before that I'm convinced that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. And it doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong in that conviction for what we see in Scripture to matter and to be true. Um, that's my interpretation as I read it, and that's, that's my conviction as I have studied through it. But I, I reserve the right to be wrong. And um, many, many, many men that I respect and that I, I admire and I read their work a lot think I'm dead wrong. <laughs> that's okay. But what I want you to see is that even if Melchizedek is not Christ pre-incarnate, he is representing God. And his role in this is the same role that God takes. And I want you to notice that Melchizedek is the one who came out searching for Abram. He is the one who came out and initiated this encounter. Abram didn't go knocking at the gates of Salem and go, Hey, dude, my army's hungry. Can you feed us? Melchizedek initiated the encounter because God is always the initiator. God is the one who comes to us. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now what that means is this. It is the fact that God is good, which causes him to reach out to us and draw us to himself. We don't go searching for God. No man does. The scripture tells us that no one seeks after God. No one does what is right. No one loves him. Nobody desires him in any way. What we desire of ourselves is whatever it is that's going to satisfy our flesh. And every one of us has our own set of sins. Every one of us has our own bent. Every one of us has our own things that we hunger and thirst after that we're not supposed to, and we still do. And left to ourselves, we will chase those things to our own destruction. Left to ourselves, we will chase them without limit, we will chase them without restraint, and we will chase them until they have completely captured us. It's a strange thing to consider, but when you chase something down with that kind of single-minded determination to have it, instead of you capturing it, it tends to capture you. And that's what sin does to us. Sin destroys us, it lays hold of us, and it ruins our lives, and it destroys everything there is about us. So anybody who thinks that I went looking for God doesn't understand the dynamic. God came searching for you. God sought you out. God found you where you were, and God changed your heart. He initiated your life. He initiated your conversion. He initiated your repentance. He called you to life while you still hated him, and the first response of a living heart is to cry for mercy. Now, this is because God is always working in all circumstances, governing his creation to bring about that which he has purposed before the world began. You say, that's a whole lot to draw out of the fact that Melchizedek came to Abram. Well, it's all there, but I want to show you something specific. Look at Ephesians 1. We're just going to read one verse here, but verse 11 in Ephesians 1 
says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God is the one who is governing his creation according to his purpose. Now, if you don't know God, that might be a little frightening to you. If you don't know the kind of God who is, if you only know the God of your own imagination who is capricious and angry and filled with strange feelings of of hatred towards anything that that is, if your only vision of God is a trumped-up vision of you, the fact that God is working out all things according to his will can be a little unsettling. And most of the world, when they view God, they view him through a lens of their own creation. They view him according to their own nature. They view him according to themselves. And so when you begin to speak about God as he is in Scripture, there's always a lot of pushback. And that pushback is always centered around the fact that, for the most part, people don't know who God is. And they're worried that God is too much like them to be trusted. And that's a fair fear. (laughs) If God was like me, I would not be telling you to trust him. It's pretty simple. But God is not like me. He is in the process of making me like him, which is to all of our advantage. And if you think about it, what the scripture tells us about the purpose of God, it is exactly that in every one of us. Look at Romans chapter 8. Verses 28 and 29 says this, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So you think about what the purpose of God is in the context of his searching out a people. What we find is that Romans 8, 28 and 29 tell us precisely what God's purpose is. And what God's purpose is, is this. He desires to conform the people that he has chosen into the perfect image of his son. And he desires that so fiercely that he is working everything in the world towards that end. He is unwilling to allow any of his children to not be conformed to the image of Christ. And he will do whatever is needful to change your life, to change your circumstance, to change your desires, and to change your spirit and your person into the likeness of Christ. There is nothing off limits. And if your perspective on following after Christ goes something like this, well, I just want to make sure I don't go to hell. And therefore, I'm going to have just enough of Jesus to keep me safe. When somebody tells you that God is going to touch your whole life and change it into the likeness of Christ, that just might disturb you. I have been told by people they don't want any part of that kind of Christianity. I can find no other that's worth having any part in, honestly. Because in the end, if you know yourself and you know what you are, The thing you want more than anything is to be delivered from yourself. You want to be delivered from what you are. You want to be set free from this flesh. You want to be set free from the bondage of being you. And what Christ comes to do is exactly that. He sets us free from our own sin, from our own nature, from our own depravity. And he has saved us for holiness. He has saved us so that we will be conformed to his own glory. And in that there is beauty and power and truth beyond all measure. For everything that we are, and everything we're ever going to be, it comes down to this. God has sought you out to make you his precious child. 
somebody that he can love, not only because of his goodness, but because of the goodness that he has produced in you. It's a strange thing to consider that you will never be good enough to deserve God's love, and yet God is in the process of making you so. Because he loves Christ without limit. And he loves Christ without bounds. And he loves Jesus Christ with everything that he is because Jesus Christ is perfect. And if God is changing you into the likeness of Christ, he is making you just like that. He's transforming you into the character and the nature of Jesus. And he is always guiding the events in our lives to bring that to pass. Whatever's going on. Did Abram know that when he went after his his nephew Lot that he was going to encounter this man Melchizedek and, and be blessed by him and receive this blessing so that later on the writer of Hebrews could talk about it and tell us why Jesus is better than the priesthood of Aaron? Was that in Abram's mind at all? I mean, this is a span of 2,000 years plus the gap between these two events. And God was doing that to do this, to do what we're doing today. It kind of boggles the imagination when you think about all of the ways that God is in the process of fulfilling his will. And he is always doing that. He is always bringing things to pass that he has intended before the world began. He is always manifesting the truth that he has put into creation. And he is always doing it so that his people might know who he is. So that his people might be conformed into Christ. And so everything that's going on in your life, bar none, is planned and ordained by the will of God to produce the character of Christ in you. So right now, I want you to consider whatever it is that you're dealing with, whatever struggle, whatever tragedy, whatever triumph, whatever hope, and I want you to think about how it is that God has ordained this thing to make you like Jesus. Sometimes it can be very hard to see. And it's, it's, it's always harder to see if you're not looking for it. So you do yourself a favor by considering the events of your life through that lens. You do yourself a favor by considering the circumstances that you're living in and by the things that you're facing through the lens of saying, Lord, how are you going to use this to transform me? How are you going to use this to make me be like Jesus? How are you going to use this to make my life be pleasing in your sight? Because that's always going on. So for each of us, there is a requirement that we be conscious participants in this labor if we want to get the most out of it. It will also help you when things are going in a way other than you would have desired to know that this moment that I really wish I could change is designed by God to change something in me. Okay, Lord, have your way, do your will. Help me understand so that instead of fighting against you, I'm working with you. Because I want to be changed. I want to be set free from me. I want to be delivered. So the very first thing we have to understand is that this is God's work. God is the one who is searching you out. God is the one who is changing you. God is the one who is initiating whatever's going on in your life. It's his work to do. It's his work to bring to pass. And he is always faithful to do it. The second thing I want you to see from this is that Melchizedek provided for Abram's need. Abram went out. They just fought a war. They came back. They're hungry. <laughs> that's, there's a lot been going on. 
And Melchizedek came out and provided bread and wine for the entire army. He fed them. Now, it was a small army to be true, but how many of us have the stores in the pantry to go out and feed 300 people like that? I don't. <laughs> and my wife is a great preparer. <laughs> this, is a, this is a big undertaking. But it is nothing compared to how God has ordained his creation to provide for your needs and sustain you. And it's not just you. I'm amazed every single time I see the big giant migratory flocks of geese flying south and north. And I think about all those millions of birds and I think about the fact that they have to eat the entire time that they're flying, all the way across the United States, all the way to the southern places that they go. They've got to find food and water every single day. And modern harvesters tend to be a little more efficient than they used to be. There's less waste. There's less grain laying around in the fields. And yet there is always enough to keep those birds alive. There there, there doesn't seem to be any difficulty with God feeding his creatures. There doesn't seem to be any difficulty with God providing for the needs of his people. I guarantee you that if you gave it just two minutes thought, you could look back over some place in your life, and you could understand, you could see places where God has provided for you in some way, and when you look at it, you say, I still don't know how this happened. I can't understand how there was enough money to meet this need. I I don't get how this blessing came to us. I cannot comprehend how this came to pass, and yet it did. Most of us, if if we gave it just a little bit of thought, could come up with dozens of, of testimonies of just how God has provided for need, just how God has sustained us through the course of our lives. And if you came up with hundreds or thousands, you would still be millions short. Because God is actively working to provide for everything that you need every day of your life. If you belong to him, your care is his determination. He's taking care of you. And he's making certain that everything that is necessary is where it is supposed to be. So that you are provided for in the fullness of time. Everything that God does is about this. Now, I find it particularly interesting that in the, in the account of Melchizedek and Abram, he brought out bread and wine. It's, it's a picture, in my mind, of the foreshadowing of Christ. Because what did Christ feed his people? Bread and wine. Christ was the bread of heaven. And he gave to us the wine and the oil of the Spirit. He gave to us the fullness of everything that is. And then we see the picture of Christ taking care of his people. We see foreshadowed in it the picture of communion. We see foreshadowed in it, by by that connection, we also see foreshadowed in this provision. We see the provision of God in, in making a sacrifice for his people. Because the bread and the wine that Christ used to feed his people was a picture of what? Passover. Right? Christ used the Passover supper to, to give communion. It was that, that story is where it began. And Passover was a picture of the sacrifice of Christ, the slaughter of the innocent to cover them in the blood so that the, the slayer would pass over. The whole picture gives us this idea that God doesn't do anything by accident. There are no coincidences. That in everything that happens, God is working out his purpose. And he's giving us hints. He's giving us pictures. He's giving us shadows. 
He's giving us what insight he has, or what insight we need, to understand what he's doing. We see Jesus hidden in the folds. And if you read the scripture with your eyes open and your mind awake, you will find Jesus peeking out at you from nearly every page. He's, he's, he's throughout the scripture. It is his word to us. And, and in everything that God has done, and in all of his testimony to us, he has been providing what has been needed. So let's return to this issue of being delivered from ourselves and ask the question, what is needed to set us free from our own nature? What is needed is the sacrifice of Jesus being slaughtered for our sin. What is needed is somebody who is willing to live a perfect life in our place and die without deserving that death so that the guilty ones could be forgiven because his blood would then be counted as payment for our offenses. Now that is a, that is a phenomenally huge thing to need. <laughs> and it's also a little bit crazy if you think about it. Because who would do that? Who would be willing to go and die for the sake of the guilty, being innocent themselves? None of us. But God did. Jesus Christ left heaven, became a man, and lived a perfect life, satisfying the law of God in its entirety. He then died the death of the guilty, though he did not deserve it slaughtered for our sins, willingly laying down his life, that his blood might cover us. The whole of it is the provision of God for the need of his people. And the whole story of scripture shows us this willingness of God to provide the needs of his people. That God is always taking care of what our need is. And, and this reality of Melchizedek coming out and giving bread and wine to Abram is a testimony of how God himself goes out of his way to find his people and provide for their need. It's a testimony of how God himself goes out of his way to make certain that we who are his are cared for. This is a kingly act. It's the responsibility of the king to care for his people. And so Melchizedek came out and cared for Abram. It was a kingly act. A picture of just whose we are. And in it there is testimony and confession about who Abram was and about who God was. Because in the blessing that followed, not only was it a kingly act, it was also a priestly one. So let's look again in Genesis because I want you to see the words that Melchizedek gave. I'll turn back to Genesis chapter 14. And here's the blessing that Melchizedek gave. He said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he gives here these words of truth and inclusion. He gives words that define this relationship very accurately. Now this is early on in Abram's walk with God. This is early on in his being selected. And, and this is a time when, when Abram is still learning some things about his God. 
But what Melchizedek tells him is that his God has been caring for him and that Abram belongs to God. He gives voice to the binding nature of Abram's relationship to God and of God's watch care over him. Abram belongs to God. Now, this is a statement of ownership. And for us, that sounds a little bit off-putting because we are not slaves. As the, as the Jews said to Jesus, we have never been any man's slave. Well, I think I remember something about Egypt. And I think I remember something about Babylon. And I think I remember something about all of the pagan nations that would continually run over you and make you their slaves for a season every time you turned away from God. Every time you say... I will not belong to God, guess what? You belong to someone else. Because here's the reality of it. We are all slaves of someone. You're either a slave of God, or you are a slave of sin, according to Paul in Romans chapter 6. And Melchizedek puts this very succinctly. Abram belongs to God. Now here's what's remarkable. Every single thing that's on the planet, every single thing that is in in the entire universe, how far does space go? Robbie was asking the question before church. It goes on forever. It's infinite so far as we know. And all of it belongs to God. Why does it all belong to God? Because he made it. It's his by right of creation. But if you are a child of God, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a blood-bought child of God, you belong to God in a different sort of way. You belong to God not only by right of creation, but also by right of purchase. The scripture reminds us you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. What was the price of your purchase? It was the blood of Jesus You have been purchased at great cost, and that means you belong to God. You are His, having been purchased. Property is not a bad word to explain it. I know it's a word that we might think sounds degrading. I'm no man's property. Well, you are no man's property, but you are God's property. He has bought you. Now, what's remarkable about this relationship is that God has bought you, making you his own. But even as he bought you, making you his own, he also went further and adopted you, making you his own child. He is caring for you as if you belong to him because you do. But you belong to him in a relationship that is rooted and founded in love, not in a mere financial exchange. He purchased you because he loved you. And he cares for you because he wants to. Now, having purchased you, he also obligated himself to care for you. Because he is a good God. And he is a good master. And knowing that he is a good master, that means that since you are his, he must provide for your needs. This is not an obligation that you have placed upon him, but one that he has placed upon himself. So what we see here is that Melchizedek expresses this to Abram. Abram belongs to God Most High. Look at this again. Blessed be Abram of God Most High. And then he says, in case we missed it, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Everything that is belongs to him. Now, what this means 
is that everything that we know about Abram has a root cause of three letters. G-O-D. Abram was victorious over the armies of the seven nations, over the seven kings, because God. Abram was wealthy beyond all men on the earth because God. Abram was a man who knew who God was and who walked with God and who obeyed God because God. And everything that was good about Abram was because God. Everything that was right about Abram was because God. And the promise that Abram lived by and clung to and and counted on was answered because God. Remember that when Abram tried to answer it, he messed the whole thing up. And a lot of other things as well. (laughs) But God is faithful. And God cared for him. And God provided for him. And the victory and and the care and everything else was because God. Well, here's the connection, beloved. Everything that is you is because God. Amen? You are exactly who you are because God has been at work in your life and you are exactly where you are because God has been at work in your life. You are a product of God's love and care and provision. Now, not only did he give testimony about this relationship between Abram and God and by extension between us and God, he also gave testimony about the very nature of God himself. He speaks of God's omnipotence, and he speaks of God's majesty, and he speaks of God's dominion. And he reminds Abram that God is God over all things, that nothing is excluded from the hand and the control and the sovereign power of the God of the universe. Nothing. Everything that is comes because God has been faithful and because God has been at work doing his work. Everything, all of it, there there is no part excluded. The totality of everything that we are stems from this truth. God is doing his work. God is fulfilling his purpose. God has ordained these days as miserable as they might be. He has ordained these challenges as much as we wish they had fallen on some other generation. He has ordained these leaders that we want to replace. And he has ordained these challenges that these leaders have created that we wish they were smart enough not to create. What does that tell us? That these days have been prepared for us. And if these days have been prepared for us, then it follows that we have been prepared for us. For these days. Beloved, hear me. Whatever we need, God has. Whatever power, whatever strength, whatever influence, whatever plan, whatever purpose, whatever stratagem, whatever victory, it stems from God. I can't imagine the, the mindset which would cause a man to go out with 300 men and think he can take on seven kings and their armies. 
Never mind that he got it done. That's, that's really beyond the point of my amazement. My amazement stems from the fact that Abram went, seven kings carried off my nephew, let's go get him. <laughs> what? How? What does it tell us about where he was putting his faith? In God. In the sovereign, omnipotent, powerful, majestic, glorious God. So what keeps us from following in suit? The fact that we tend to put our faith in us. We tend to put our faith in our will and in our ability and in the things that we can see and in the stuff that we can put our hands on and the plans that we think we can make. Beloved, it's completely the wrong tack. We need to remember that God is the one who is governing all of this madness and that God is the one who has a plan which he is working out so that this will in the end bring glory to himself. As Abram realized exactly what was going on, he had a response. So God initiated the, the, the encounter and God provided for Abram's need and then God blessed Abram through Melchizedek and Abram responded with worship. You get this? Abram responded by giving to Melchizedek a full tithe of everything that had been captured in the war against the seven kings. I don't know, have any idea how much that was. But it was seven kings and their armies, and Abram had the spoils. I don't think it was a small gift. I don't think it was an inconsequential gift. I think it was something huge. And Abram gave to God, through Melchizedek, a full tithe, a tenth, of everything that he had, then and there, as an act of worship. And I want you to notice that that act of worship is born as a response of God's initiation of blessing and provision. That God initiated this, that God came to him and blessed him and provided for him, and the response of that awareness is worship. The response of that awareness is to give to God what he deserves, to give to him that which he has laid claim to in our lives. Abram gave to God through this act of tithing. He surrendered his own victory and acknowledged that the real victor was the God who had given him the victory in the first place. Right? He worked hard for it. He was the man swinging the sword. He was the guy out there fighting the kings. Why should he have to surrender part of what he get? You understand the mindset? But when you recognize that it wasn't you, that it was God who enabled you? That really all this stuff packed on the thousand camels behind you or however much it was, I really don't know. That it didn't come by your strength, but it came from God? Does that translate into our lives? It better. You work hard for your money. You do the things you're supposed to do. You get out there. You get up every day. You go to work. You feed your family. But who gives you the strength to do it? God. Who gives you the opportunity to do it? God. Who makes sure that your employer is profitable enough to be able to pay you? God. In the end, you have nothing that God himself has not provided for you. 
Sometimes he allows you to participate in the process. Sometimes he just blesses you out of a clear blue sky with no connection to anything you've ever done. He just gives it to you. But sometimes he permits you to participate in the process of his blessing your life. And because we don't understand that connection, we get arrogant about it. And we say things like, it's my money, why should I have to give some of it to the church? can't tell you how many times I've heard those questions. In the end, recognizing that God is the source of all of it tends to free your hands. Recognizing that you have nothing that God did not give you tends to loosen your grip. So Abram, recognizing that God was the provider of all of it, gave him the spoils. And in doing that, he acknowledged that God was the victor. And everything that we do when we give to God is a confession of the same thing in our lives. Listen to how John described it, John the Baptist answering the people. He said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. In other words, you don't even have the power to understand truth. You don't have the power to gain anything whatsoever unless God is the one who has first given it to you. This is God's gift to us as his people. He gives us the capacity and the ability to learn what he has. And we don't need to cling selfishly or fearfully to anything in our lives. Not our provision, not our power, not our circumstances, not our time, not our money, not our resources, none of it. Remember what Jesus answered Pilate when Pilate said, don't you know I have the power to put you to death? Remember Pilate and his arrogance trying to pressure Jesus to do something he didn't want to do? And Jesus said this, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one... I'm sorry, wrong passage. Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. But hear this. When we, when we recognize that even the power that we have to do the things that we set out to do comes from God... It changes the way we see it. You you have broad skills. Everyone in this room, every person in the sound of my voice, whether you recognize it or not, you have broad skills, you have deep skills, you have abilities and you have giftednesses that surpass anything you might imagine. But you have those things because God has given them to you. God has provided you with everything that is needful to accomplish whatever he's doing in your life. And he will continue to provide you with everything that is needful to accomplish whatever he is doing in your life. This is our God. He is always faithful. He is always competent to make certain that our needs are answered and met. Now, some people will object to being faithful with the tithe and faithful with their time and worshiping and giving unto God a faithful response to his goodness because they feel like if I give that up, then I'm going to have nothing. So look with me at Mark chapter 10, the passage I started to read a moment ago. (laughs) Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 29, it says this, Assuredly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands 
for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So what is it that Jesus is telling us? He's telling us, look, don't worry about giving up anything that I call you to surrender. Don't think that you could ever be guilty about giving God. You can't. It is impossible for us to outgive God. Firstly, because God will not be a debtor to any man. But secondly, because what can you give that you have not received? He's already given you 100%. And if he requires of you 10% of it, then who gave more? You or him? He gave more. You can't outgive him. And you cannot give so much that God himself will be unable to repay what he calls you to surrender. You see, in the end, this act of worship is an act of submission. And what we see as Abram dealt with Melchizedek was Abram submitting to the will of God and submitting to God through this worship given in the presence of Melchizedek. This is an act of submission. It's the place where many actively rebel as followers of Christ. And it's because we feel like we own our money, we own our time, we own our resources. My life is mine, my stuff is mine, my schedule is mine, my will is mine, and I'll give what I can give when I can give it. That's a completely wrong perspective. We feel that no one has the right to command us about what to give, and we'll give every excuse. There's not enough money to pay the bills, There's not enough time to do the work. I'll give a little bit when there's a little bit left. I'll throw a little bit in the plate. You know, when I have a little bit extra in my pocket, I'll do that sort of thing. But the truth is, is that until we have satisfied the full requirement of the tithe, you've never given anything. God is very clear about what he requires of his people. He has the right to demand all of it. There was a a young man who grew up in the area, came to our youth group, was involved in the church when he could. His, his family was a member of another church. He got married, married another young lady from the area, joined the military, and he came back. And um, for a long time, when they were deployed anywhere they went, they always sent a portion of their, their tithe to the church here because of his love for this body. And um, they were back one year um, on vacation, he came in and he said, you know, I've, I've got my check, I, I'd like to just give it. And he had his daughter with him. And he brought his little girl in and he, he put the check in the plate and he said to his daughter, do you know why we're doing this? And she said, no. And he said, because God gave us everything and he lets us keep 90%. Isn't he a good God? And I thought, what an awesome expression of, of the principle of the tithe. God lets us keep so much. Isn't he a good God? It's such a beautiful picture for us to understand that God allows us to enter into this exchange with him. He has the right to withhold all of it. He has the right to give us nothing, and he would still be right. He has the absolute right over his creation to do whatever he wills with it. But he gives us this structured principle by which we can give to him something that is our worship and that is submission. And he's he's asking for money not because he needs it, but because we need to let it go. It grabs a hold of us. It it clings to our hearts. It, It governs our actions. 
It changes us. And so God builds into his law something which is a provision for us, which allows us to submit to him. Giving God a little bit out of our excess is a disobedience. And further, it's an insult to him. In fact, in the book of Malachi, it says it's robbery. Look at Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Malachi is easy to find. Go to Matthew and go back one book. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall your vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. What's God's point in this? Does, that he needs the money? No. God's point is that he will not bless faithlessness. And in the end, when Abram submitted to Melchizedek and gave to him a tithe of all as as an act of worship, as an act of obedience, as an act of pursuing God, what he was doing was showing us that God is honored when his people honor him. The giving a gift honors both the giver and the receiver. And so when God gives to us the opportunity to invest in his work and invest in the kingdom, it is the reality that he has included us in what it is that he's doing. Beloved, everything that we do and everything that we are is about this interchange between us and the God who sought us out. And our largest problem comes from the fact that we think we had something to do with it. And since we had something to do with it, we should also be able to define the terms of how we live it out. But when we recognize that God is the author of all of it, and that God is the originator of all of it, and that God himself was the one who sought us out and gave to us out of his abundance, that removes all of that garbage from our minds. And it allows us to give joyfully and and obediently and willingly And to find in that act of obedient, sovereign submission, or submission to his sovereignty, excuse me, purpose and joy in life. There is no place more uncomfortable than fighting against a sovereign God when he is trying to teach you that lesson. It's a hard, hard thing. But in the end, learning it, will free you from so many things. I commend to you the reality of saying, God, whatever it is that I am, and whatever it is that I have, I give them to you. Because by doing that, you open yourself up to receive from God blessings of obedience and blessings of righteousness and blessings of His presence and the smile of His joy 
in so many ways that when you're standing saying, no, Lord, I won't. I'm going to give you of myself this much and no more. You lose out on so much of that. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that as we labor in the kingdom, that we would do it with willing hearts. I pray, God, that you would show us what it looks like to walk faithfully and that you would show us what it looks like to love you with our whole hearts. Lord, let us be a people who rejoice in you. And we pray, God, that as we walk and labor, Christ would be honored. We thank you for Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.